Alrighty, good morning or afternoon or evening or whatever time of the day you might have clicked the play button. Thank you so much for joining me today uh, as this is a first in the uh, Chapter Chat series where uh, I'm going to be flying solo today. Uh, my co-pilot for the Axe Chapter Chats, Jason Bridgman. Uh, we just had some scheduling things this week where it just it just wasn't working for us to be able to, uh, to get together. And I told Jason, I said, just in the interest of some consistency uh, to have the chats drop on Friday, I'm going to go ahead and just record this one solo. And th that's particularly because of the chapter that we're at, uh, as we are in Acts chapter 25. If you've got a Bible and want to crank it with me, feel free to do so. Um, this particular chapter is maybe not as heavy on application and some of the things that really make for, for good conversation between uh, Jason and myself. And so I, I told Jason, I'm going to go ahead and record this one, and it, and it may be terrible. Uh, you may absolutely dread this, and you may uh, you know hit the stop button probably. Uh, if you have not already, you may do it very, very quickly. Um, and, and that's okay, but a lot of what's recorded for us in chapter 25 is really just some narrative to set up what's going to take place in chapter 26, as we are here continuing in the midst of these various defenses that Paul is being called upon to give. He's been charged by the Jews when he had come to Jerusalem uh, for you know, creating all kinds of uh, disruption amongst the Jewish religion, that he's been charged with desecrating the temple uh, by bringing uh, Gentiles into it, and uh, just uh, unsubstantiated charges that even after all of these different uh, quote-unquote trials that Paul's been put through, he's still not been found guilty. Where we left off at the end of chapter 24, uh, Paul had given a defense before the governor Felix, and at the very end of chapter 24, we learned that uh, Felix uh, decided to just kind of keep Paul in custody for a couple of years. Instead of really making any kind of a final determination about him, he just kept him in custody for, to, for, for two more years. And Paul, to his credit, uh, probably took advantage of that two years as best as he could. Probably still wasn't his original um, you know, desire to have to be chained up and to you know, not have the freedom to just come and go and to be able to go the places that Paul normally would like to, and that is to go places where the gospel's never been before. Um, but he does have an audience with Felix and maybe with other people of, the, uh, of, of, of nobility and people of rank that he would have had the chance to speak to about Jesus. Um, but at the end of those two years, we're told at the end of chapter 24 that Felix is replaced by a new governor, Festus. Portius Festus is brought into office, and that's where we come when we come to chapter 25. So let's just read to set up here at the beginning of chapter 25, verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, came to Caesarea, he then went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now just very quickly about Festus. Uh, he's the governor here of Judea. And this is a helpful time marker that Luke has given us because when we consult with some other secular writings from history, we can mark this as being somewhere in the ballpark of 60 to 62 AD, depending on which calendar that you go by. And Festus is maybe a little bit better man than Felix, uh, maybe not necessarily a better ruler, uh, but I do think that we will see some things about Festus just in this chapter alone that 
for the most part, he seems like a, a mostly uh, upstanding fellow and wants to, you know, wants to do the right thing. Um, his administration probably doesn't have nearly the amount of corruption and excesses that uh, Felix has had. Um, but Festus's ability to handle just the volatile uh, political and even the religious matters of his province are really, really lacking. Uh, Josephus actually does record some stuff about uh, Festus's uh, noble attempts to suppress some of the just lawlessness, some of the assassins that uh, was going on during Felix's tenure. Uh, but Festus, later on, he's going to die in office and is only going to end up serving for uh, a couple of years. So he arrives here in Caesarea. Presumably he's came down from Rome. The emperor has appointed him, so he now comes down to this new territory. And within just a matter of a few days, he travels down to Jerusalem. Now, we might be inclined to think that Paul, having been in prison for these last two years, that that would have pacified those Jews who just really had it out for Paul. We might think that some of the furor that they've had about Paul would have, you know, would have settled down by now. All right, he's in jail. We don't have to fool with him. He's not out here, you know, stirring up and you know, teaching this Christianity, this the way stuff. Uh, we might think that that's kind of died down, but unfortunately, that's really not the case. Because I think when we get here to verse 2, we're going to see that just the hatred that these Jews had, uh, it, it, it was just as strong and just as bloodthirsty as it ever was before. And so verse 2, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews, I think maybe some translations say the influential men of the Jews, they laid out their case against Paul. That, that is, laid out the case to Festus. So here's, we got the new figurehead. So we're going to lay out the case to this new guy. And the text says, and they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he would summon Paul to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. My, oh, my. There, there's just, there, there is no relenting with these folks. Um, I think actually history actually maybe bears out that maybe even a new high priest actually had been appointed in during those uh, intervening couple of years and, and still... The hatred for Paul is just as strong now as it was before. Now, this is not the first time that an ambush had been planned against Paul. Just a few chapters back, there was those men who had kind of uprised on their own and came and concocted this plan and told the, the Sanhedrin council, hey, if you'll plan to transport him from here to there, you know, we'll ambush and we'll kill him and we'll get rid of him once and for all. It seems now here in chapter 25, a couple years removed from that, that the Sanhedrin themselves are now plotting that very kind of thing. You know, it's not just somebody brought this idea to them. No, it's our idea now, and we're willing to do this, anything to get rid of this Paul fellow. That just says something to the, the, the animosity uh, that people had toward Christians. And I'm going to remind us again, this is not the Romans hating Christians just yet. The people hating the Christians at this point in time are these Jews, the, the, the purest Jews who are still clinging to old school Judaism and refusing to accept what, what true Jews need to accept, and that is that the Christ is Jesus. You know, Paul continually, and I think he's going to do it again here in this chapter, Paul continually asserts that he's a good Jew, and good Jews 
what they do is they become Christians. That's what a good Jew does because they believe what the prophets foretold and they believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of those prophecies. And so as a result, we're then going to submit ourselves to this Messiah, to this, to this king, and we're going to do what he says. And that is we're going to become, we're going to become Christians and we are going to be on the way. Uh, Festus, though, even though there's been this offer to, hey, would you, you know, hey, Festus, look, we can get rid of this guy. You know, you inherited a troublemaker with this guy, Paul. We can get rid of him for you. Festus, thankfully, and maybe even providentially, I don't know, Festus doesn't agree to this. Uh, verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, verse 5, let the men of authority among you, these influential men, let them go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about this man, then let them bring the charges against him. And so Festus says, hey, look, all right, we're not going to do this ambush, assassinating anybody deal. But he does invite these Jews, hey, I'll let you guys bring your case you know, down to Caesarea. I'd be more than glad to, to preside over and to hear this. I know that my predecessor heard it and never came to a conclusion, but hey, I'd be glad to give it a try. So he invites these guys to bring their case against Paul. But apparently it seems that Paul maybe was not given the same advantage of uh, you know, several days warning and you know, going to give the opportunity to prepare for this. Because we're then told in verse 6 that after Festus had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and he ordered Paul to be brought. Just stop and think about that for a second. You know, this, this may be Luke's way of just kind of inserting uh, kind of a, a note that we're supposed to kind of draw the conclusion ourselves, that Festus, by spending, you know, more than a week with the, 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 the plaintiffs, the prosecutors in this case, you know, logic would demand that that, that would have been inappropriate. You know, can you imagine being, you know, charged with some kind of a crime? You're the defendant in a case, and you find out that the judge has been hanging out. Maybe he went on vacation with the prosecutor, with, with the lawyer for the plaintiff's side, and had been hanging out with them for the previous week, and then now we're going to come and we're going to sit and we're going to preside over your case, and they're going to argue the case against you. You'd be thinking, hey, come on, that... That just seems unfair. Just something about that just seems suspicious. That just doesn't really look good. And so I think that maybe this is Luke's way of saying that maybe they did have some further discussions about about the case. Probably they would have the Jews would have been trying to kind of persuade Felix to or not Felix Festus uh, to to hey here's what we want you to know about this when it's time for us to have this trial. And uh, once again, as verse five seems to indicate. Uh, excuse me, as verse 6 seems to indicate, uh, Paul didn't really get any advance notice about that. You know, because the very day that Festus arrives back in Caesarea, uh, he says, hey, bring Paul up tomorrow and we're going to do this. And so, you know, whatever witnesses Paul could have called, whatever kind of lawyer he might have summoned to get his case ready, hey, there's, there's no time for that. No chance for them to make an appearance or any of those uh, sorts of things. Um so they're going to bring all of these charges uh, against Paul uh, really kind of here at a moment's notice. And as has been the case time and time again, verse 7 is going to say that they brought many charges, many serious charges against Paul, charges that they could not 
prove. And that really is the key here. That really is the key for uh, all of these chapters where Paul is having to make a, a defense, and that is that charges continue to be brought against an innocent man. And maybe that is one of the big just takeaways here, if I'm thinking, if I am trying to find some application points in here, uh, here maybe is one of the big ones from this chapter. And that is that God's people, we should expect continued and fierce opposition. That's just always going to be the case. It is. Uh, you know, suffering is to be expected as a child of God. I think, for example, about what's said in 1 Peter chapter 4, that, you know, yep, suffering is going to take place. Much of 1 Peter talks about the suffering that Christians are going to endure. Um, but if we are going to suffer, we need to be making sure that it is suffering as a Christian, that we're suffering for the sake of righteousness. You know, Peter will say in 1 Peter chapter 4, let no man suffer as an evildoer. You know, if you've done bad stuff, if you have committed crimes, if you've committed sins, and you're now going to have to face the consequences of that, well, hey, yeah, you just you're getting what you deserve. I mean, that's just natural. That's reaping what you sow. That's that, that's going to happen. But what Peter talks about in First Peter chapter four is that when you suffer as a Christian, you should expect it, and in fact, you can glorify God about that. That's a good. Thing. And so we want to be making sure that, yes, even though we may be accused of things, we may be opposed about various things, we always want to be making sure that we are as blameless as possible so that we'll be able to be justified and be vindicated uh, before the Lord. I don't want to, we don't want to suffer as an evildoer. If we're going to suffer, let's suffer for, for Christ's sake and for doing the right thing. Paul here is, is the consummate example of that. And so verse 7 says that when Festus had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem, they stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against Paul that they could not prove. Verse 8 now, here is Paul's defense. And we're going to notice here kind of, kind of three things that Paul says. Two of these are things that Paul has repeated again and again, but he's going to add a third layer to it. So verse 8, Paul argued in his defense... He said, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. So, they've brought these charges again and again. Paul, he's, he's telling us to do things that are contrary to the law of Moses. And he did all this stuff against the temple. Paul said, number one, haven't done anything against the law of Moses. Not, not one thing. Secondly, haven't done anything against the temple. Didn't, didn't desecrate that. Didn't do any of that kind of stuff. Nobody's ever brought the first witness forward to be able to even, you know, corroborate any of that nonsense. You know, it really just seems that the, you know, these Jews, that their whole approach and their whole tactic to this case was, we'll just keep repeating the same stuff again and again and again, and eventually just reiterating it a million times, uh, eventually that'll make it work. You know, it doesn't seem as if there was any understanding that the burden of proof is on the plaintiff. It is on the prosecutor's side, and they don't have any of that kind of proof. Paul's defense is just as strong and as accurate as it was all along. That third thing, though, that Paul adds in his defense this time is he says, Neither against Caesar have I committed any offense. Haven't done anything against the Jews' law. Haven't done anything against the temple. And I'm wanting you to know, Festus, 
you as a representative of Caesar, you as someone that Caesar has just appointed to this new office as the governor, I want you to know I haven't done anything against your boss. And this is really kind of some foreshadowing by bringing up the name of Caesar here because Paul is going to invoke the name of Caesar uh, in, a, in a powerful way here in just a couple of moments. Um, so Paul uh, just is, is, is not going to confess to something that you know he's not done. Verse 9, though, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So Festus, he's he still, just like Felix, he refuses to absolve Paul of these charges refuses to pronounce him you know, not guilty, refuses to release Paul. That would have been the right thing to do, and I think Festus knew that would have been the right thing to do. But wishing to do the Jews a favor. There's all kinds of political maneuvering going on here. You can see that in a big way in this chapter. There'll be even more of this uh, kind of uh, political alliances uh, stuff that's going to come up here in the second half of the chapter as well. Um, and so what he says is kind of as a cop-out offer, Hey, Paul, well, would you be willing to go up to Jerusalem and, you know, have your trial there, maybe? And this really just begs, I think, just the obvious question. If these Jews are not able to present their case before the governor in Caesarea and do that effectively, how are they going to do that any better in Jerusalem? The change of venue here, what difference is it going to make? Or maybe just kind of flip that on the other side. If Paul can't get a fair trial before this supposedly unbiased governor in Caesarea, then how does he expect to get a better trial before a much more hostile you know, audience and in a much more hostile city before this very same governor in Jerusalem? And, and, and I think Paul recognizes that it's not going to make a difference to be able to go to Jerusalem. Paul's, we've done done this. We've done been through this. I've done I've done made a defense in Jerusalem, and I've done made a defense here before uh, you know Caesar's appointed uh, governor, and here I am essentially doing it one more time against the new governor. And I think it is at this point that Paul's kind of reached his breaking point. I've 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 tried to play ball, and I've tried to to, to do things without disrupting anything or putting anybody any kind of you know in, in a compromising position. But Paul says in verse ten. He says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I, I really like how the New Living Translation renders verse 10. But Paul replied, to, to so this is Festus' question, hey, w would you be willing to go to Jerusalem and do the trial there? Paul replied, no, this is the official Roman court and I ought to be tried right here. He goes on to say, you know very well that I am not guilty of harming these Jews. I have done no wrong as you yourself know very well. And so Paul really just kind of indicts Festus here. Hey, look, man, you've, you, you've seen all of the evidence. You've heard all of the testimony. You, you know, based on everything that's been presented to you, you know what's the right thing to do. You know that I am not guilty of the things that they have accused me of, and there's nothing that they can do to, you know, to, to actually uh, make any of this stick. You know, this whole judicial process that was meant to protect a Roman citizen like Paul, Paul recognizes it's nothing more than just a big political facade that's really at this point being designed to, to placate these Jews 
And also, Festus, it's really just sparing you from having to make any kind of unpopular decisions. You know, I think Festus may be right here. Probably, he probably regards Paul as being, you know, rather expendable. Especially in light of some of the turmoil that has existed in his province, some of the uh, some of the, the, the uprising. In fact, you know, I said a few moments ago that the, the time frame here is sixty to sixty-two A.D. That ought to be a signal to us, because in just five short years, in sixty-seven A.D., the Jews are going to go to war. The zealots of the Jews are going to declare war on Rome. And they're going to begin murdering Roman soldiers in Palestine. And it's going to be the beginning of this big war that ultimately in AD 70 is going to result in the Romans destroying Jerusalem and destroying the temple. So all of that kind of um, you know, tension, it's, it's kind of bubbling underneath between the Jews and the Romans. And Festus here is, is trying to kind of you know, make some peace with the Jews. And so probably in his mind, you know, Paul, he, he'd like to just kind of be, be shed of this guy. But there is his own conscience that's kind of speaking out and letting him know, hey, there's, there's not really anything that I can do to actually you know, cause this guy to be put to death. He hasn't actually done anything. And so that then leaves Paul with no other recourse. So verse 11, Paul finally pulls out the card that he's been kind of keeping in his back pocket all along. Paul says to Festus, If then I am a wrongdoer, And if I have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Can we just stop right there for a second? I want you to appreciate what Paul is saying here. It's easy for us to look at all of this and to think, okay, Paul's Paul's trying to get out. He's trying to be released. That's what Paul's main agenda here is, is is, is to be set free. That's not so. That is not Paul's primary objective. Paul's main point is not to get set free. Paul's main point is to vindicate Christianity, to vindicate the gospel, to vindicate Jesus. Paul recognizes that if he is found uh, you know, guilty of some kind of a wrongdoing, then hey, he, he, he does deserve to be punished. Hey, look, if I'm a wrongdoer, I deserve to suffer as a wrongdoer. And I'm not trying to escape or evade any of those consequences that might come along with all of that. But Paul says, as he continues on, he says, But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I'm not going to confess to something that I've not done, and I'm not going to, you know, just just kowtow to that. And so then he invokes those four words that really change and set the course of the whole rest of the book of Acts. I appeal to Caesar. And so Paul he really kind of is accusing Festus here, and really in a roundabout way he's accusing Felix as well, of, of failing to provide the expected justice that is due a Roman citizen. And then he asserts his right as a Roman citizen that, hey, look, I, I'm going to have to appeal to the higher court of the land. And when he says, I appeal to Caesar, that is what he's appealing to. Is He is appealing to what would essentially amount, in, in our vernacular, to the Supreme Court of the land. This would be like, you know, you have a case that gets heard in the, in the district or circuit court here, maybe locally, and a verdict is rendered, and you then appeal that. 
You appeal that to the court above it, maybe to the Supreme Court of, 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 of Kentucky, the Court of Appeals of Kentucky. And then maybe if that doesn't work, maybe you ultimately end up appealing that all the way to the very top, and maybe it gets to the Supreme Court of the land. If it gets that far, what that means is, is that means it's a pretty big deal, and this is a pretty serious case. And Paul's saying... I'm, I'm, I'm going to make that request now. I'm requesting my case be transferred to the highest court of law in this empire, the one over which the Caesar himself presides, and at this point in history, the Caesar is Nero. Now, as soon as I say the name Nero, you, if you have any understanding at all about the Caesars, you're probably thinking, oh, that guy is crazy. That guy is a whack job. And... To be fair, later on he does become a whack job, and he does become very uh, antagonistic toward Christians. At this point in time, though, he's not quite there yet. He's actually pretty stable. The Roman Empire in general is enjoying some pretty good prosperity, and so Nero is 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 actually you know not as crazy as he would uh, later become. But Paul says, "Hey, I, I I'm ready for my case to be taken up to him." You know, I've. This has been going on for over two years now, and doesn't really seem like it's getting anywhere. And so, I've got to, I've got to pull that card. And maybe what this ought to show us is that it is proper, and it is right for Christians to seek legal redress. Now, maybe the example of Paul here probably ought to to to, to show us that it maybe shouldn't always just be our, our first line of defense, that you know, I'm exercising my rights and I want my rights right away. We maybe shouldn't just immediately jump to that, particularly if it's going to cause commotion or problems, or especially if it's going to cast you know Christianity and the kingdom in a bad light. We want to try, as Paul would write later, to live peaceably with all men. That, that, that's the first order of business. Try to live peaceably with all men. Try to work things out. Try to get along. But there comes a point where if, particularly here in the United States, if we do have legal recourses that are afforded to us through our Constitution and through the the, the various other laws of the land and the fact that we live in a democratic form of government, if those things are available to us, I think Paul's example here shows us that that it can be okay and it can be proper to uh, invoke those things um, so that we can be able to, to live and to, to carry on and to, to try to be you know what, what God calls us to be, and that is to be the salt of the earth and the light of this world. That's our desire, uh, and, and there may be you know, reasons and, and certain cases where we're going to need to invoke some of those um, privileges and rights that are available to us so that we can continue uh, to do those things. So Paul says, I appeal to Caesar. Festus maybe chews on that for a second. In fact, he does. Verse 12 says, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, then to Caesar you shall go. When it says here that Festus conferred with his counsel, I don't think that's talking about he conferred with the Sanhedrin council, you know, the guys that are on the, 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 the prosecutor side. No, this probably means that Festus had his own you know, legal staff for for advice and maybe to you know verify what the procedures are as as a newly appointed governor this may have been you know his very first case like this where somebody is making an appeal to Caesar and under Roman law he actually had the ability to to either grant or to deny that request however once he grants the request 
he can't resume jurisdiction. In other words, once he allows the case to go to Caesar, then Festus is is relinquishing any you know right to continue to try this case or to you know have any kind of uh, oversight over it. Uh, it. It belongs to Caesar now, and no man is able to take away a case that's been given to Caesar. And Festus's reply here to Paul at the end of verse twelve, when he says, "All right, to Caesar you've appealed, and to Caesar you shall go." I don't know, kind of almost just the wording of that, almost maybe hints that, at least in Festus's mind, that Paul's made a foolish choice. You know, that Paul's, yeah, yeah all right, that's what you want, buddy boy? Okay, well then, well then that's what you're going to get. I'll give you what you're asking for, but eh, I'm not really sure that you're going to like that. It seems like maybe there's a, a, a hint of that in there. And even if Festus did disagree with Paul's decision here, it did come with a benefit or two for himself. Uh, for one, it, it spared Festus from having to, you know, pursue this matter any further on his own. You know, he wasn't going to have to have any sleepless nights over this or have to worry about Paul's case. Uh, the only thing that remains now is he has to come up with a justifiable explanation as to why Paul feels compelled to appeal his case to the highest court of the land. And he has to give some kind of a reason as to why he himself was not able to render that decision. You know, again, we got to think about kind of some of the political maneuverings here. It would be really foolhardy, and it would really be just quite disastrous for his career for, Pe- for Festus to send a prisoner to the emperor without a really, really good reason for doing so. I mean, if you're going to waste the emperor's time it better be on something big. It better be on something really, really important. Maybe a case that's just really, really perplexing. Um, if he sends a case up that, that could have just really easily been resolved on his own, um, it would, number one, it would highlight his own incompetency as, as a ruler to be able to judge legal matters within his jurisdiction. And, and then secondly, it, it maybe would have been dangerous for his own life. He, he maybe is not only running the risk of getting fired from his job, but Festus maybe could be thrown to the lions by wasting the emperor's time in this way. And so that's the only thing that remains, all right? We're going to send you to Caesar. Just got to figure out what's the good reason to send your case to Caesar. And it is at this point that Luke records for us that a new person comes onto the scene in verse 13, and he's going to help with Festus coming to some kind of an explanation. So verse 13, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and they greeted Festus. Let's talk for just a second about who these people are, this Agrippa and Bernice, and it may be supposed to be pronounced differently, like Bernice or maybe even Bernike, um, but I'm looking at the words, and, it, and I've known people named Bernice, and their name was spelt this way. I'm saying Bernice, and I'll be glad to be corrected about that uh, later, but this is what we're going with. Uh, Who is this? Well, first of all, this is King Herod Agrippa II, and he is the son of, can you guess? Yeah, he's the son of King Herod Agrippa I, and we know that Agrippa because that is the Herod Agrippa that was recorded for us in the 12th chapter of Acts who got eaten up with worms. This Agrippa is Agrippa II, 
And he rules over a kind of a smaller kingdom that's just northeast of the jurisdiction where Festus is, is ruling over and governing. And Agrippa II had gotten placed into this uh, role as the king um, when he was only 17 years old. You know, when his dad got eaten with worms, he was only 17 years old. And because of his youth and some of the other, you know, political complexities, uh, he was just put over uh, this kind of a smaller uh, kingdom, a smaller territory, uh, under some Roman oversight. And it will be sometime later here than, than Agrippa's going to end up giving up kind of this smaller kingdom in you know, for a larger one in Palestine, Nero's going to uh, enlarge his uh, jurisdiction for him. Uh, but that's who this Agrippa is. He is one of the members of the famed Herodian dynasty that has been around since the very beginning of the pages of the New Testament. This woman who comes with him, Bernice, we might look at that and immediately think, oh, well, that must be his wife. Actually, it's not his wife. It's his sister. And she was originally married to Agrippa's uncle, that is, until Agrippa's uncle died. After his death, she then came and chose to live with her brother in what many people believed was an incestuous relationship. There was lots of chatter, lots of rumors that were swirled around at that time, and the truth is, this kind of intermarrying and and kind of just indecent relationships that was not new territory in the Herodian family. Do you remember back in the uh, gospel accounts when John the Baptist comes and confronts Herod? That would be Herod Antipas, who was, he was married to his brother's wife. And John says, hey, buddy, you, you, you ain't got any business being married to her. That's just, that's wrong. And on top of that, it's just gross. You know, so this is nothing new for this Herodian family if those, uh, you know, those those rumors were actually true. Um, and so Agrippa and Bernice, they're living together in Caesarea Philippi at this particular time. And they are going to come over and going to greet and, uh, you know, kind of get to know the new governor uh, here in the area. And uh, Agrippa, just kind of as a quick little note here, just as a side note, this Agrippa... He's going to die in around A.D. 100, and when he does, it's going to mark the end of the Herodian lineage because he's going to die without a child. And so this is the final of the, of, of the Herodian dynasty when we talk here about Agrippa II. And so they come and they greet Festus, verse 14. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. Eh, some of that might be spinning the truth just a little bit, but okay, we'll, we'll, we'll roll with it nonetheless. Verse 17, as he Festus just continues to recount the events of here's what's happened since I've taken place, uh, taken my role here in, in office. Verse 17, So when they came together here, I made no delay. On the next day, I took my seat on the tribunal, and I ordered the man to be brought. And when the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, 
but whom Paul asserted to be alive. So he just kind of you know, summarizes the first you know, 12 verses or so of, of the chapter saying, hey, Agrippa, um, I, I got this guy who you know, I, I inherited as a prisoner. My predecessor, Felix, didn't take care of him, and I'm just kind of bewildered as to you know, how I can reach some kind of a clear, final determination about this guy before I send him to the Caesar. You know, the, the Jews, they came and said some stuff, and it really wasn't what I was expecting considering that they wanted the man condemned to death. And it seemed like a lot of this had to do with, you know, their disagreement over this Jesus fella that uh, Paul seems to, to have some strong convictions about that, that he was dead, but now this Paul guy says that he's alive. And ironically, can I just say about that there in verse, um, in verse 19, um, Festus actually, he actually states the truth. He maybe doesn't realize it, but that's what he's stating. That yeah, Jesus was dead, and now he is alive. It seems though that the impact of that was was kind of lost on him. He didn't really comprehend. Maybe didn't take the time to sit and really think that through about you know how that could possibly be, and you know what would be the repercussions of such a thing that this man would be dead, but that now he is alive. Um, however, I think we are going to see that Agrippa. Agrippa maybe has a much better comprehension about these matters. And in chapter 26, Paul's going to kind of key in on that. You know, Agrippa being a Jew himself, maybe would have been a little bit more familiar with those sorts of things. Um, and so, as kind of Festus is wrapping all of this up to Agrippa. Verse uh, 20, let's read verse 20 again. Being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So, hey, this is, this is where I am now. I'm at this point where I don't really know what to do with this guy. You know, do you have any advice, Agrippa? What, what, I mean, what, what would you do in this circumstance? Verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. You know, I, I, I'm kind of interested to, you know, maybe just sit and hear what this Paul guy has to say. Now, let's be very careful in, in saying that this would not be another trial for Paul because Paul's already appealed to Caesar. And again, as we said a moment ago, once the appeal to Caesar is granted, you know, trying to retrial him in, in, in one of these lower courts, that, that would be totally improper. So that's not what this is. This is just going to be, hey, I'm just interested to hear I'd like to hear the story and see where that goes. Um, and so Festus says, yeah, that's a good idea. Tomorrow, in verse 22, tomorrow you'll hear him. And so, verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, they came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Let's just stop here for just a second and... Just kind of take note of the fact that Festus really rolls out the red carpet for Agrippa and Bernice, this big 
just lavish, um, you know, assembly here. The audience includes all of these uh, prominent commanders and you know other just noted men of uh, of the city. Uh, this is a really impressive gathering here, and I just want to say something about this. You know, these are the people who, uh, at least in each other's eyes, were were really big to dos. You know, Agrippa, Festus, Bernice. Even Felix. These are people who would have been considered great in their own eyes and to each other, and maybe even to certain segments of, of people at that time. But the reality is, these people are merely footnotes in history. You know, if anybody today knows the name Agrippa or Festus or Felix or any of these people, the only reason we even know those names is because of the Bible and because of the role that they played in Paul's efforts to spread the gospel and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and I bring that point up to just say, it's really easy for people to get confused about fame and celebrity. You know, the people that our society says are really, really important and really, really great, and oh, we, we, really, we ought to roll the red carpet out for them, and man, we ought to just treat them as being just so special and so revered. Our society's just messed up about that. The only people that are going to end up having any real prominence when it's all said and done, when this world comes to an end, are the people who are known by God, the ones that God knows as His own, as his sons, and as his daughters. That's what really matters, is being people who are serving the Lord in this time and in this world so that the day comes when our Lord knows us by name and he then calls us to come and live with him for all of eternity. A day is going to come when we're not going to have to hear any more about the Kardashians. And that day can't come soon enough. A day is going to come when it ain't going to matter who occupies the White House. A day's going to come when, you know, who's the Super Bowl champions or who's the, you know, highest paid actor in Hollywood. A day's going to come when ain't none of that going to matter anymore. And the only people who are going to be exalted are the people who have in this lifetime exalted Jesus as their king. All that stuff's going to be cleared up considerably on the day of judgment. And so, in the midst of all of this you know, pomp and circumstance that Festus uh, you know, kind of rolls out here for, um, for, for Agrippa and for Bernice, Paul is actually brought in, and actually, just did you notice there, you know, so all these big spectacular things are said about you know, Agrippa and Bernice and the things that were done at them, and the end of verse 23 says, and then Paul was brought in. You know, could, could there be any starker contrast? Here's these big nobles and dignitaries, and then Paul comes in. Paul probably looking pretty shabby, looking pretty ordinary, maybe even looking kind of dingy. Uh, he gets brought in, but I'll say this about Paul. The text doesn't say this, but it's, it, it's going to be very clear to us. Paul's going to see this as an ideal opportunity to lay out not just his defense, but also one more time, to promote the central message of the gospel. He's going to get to do that here in front of, 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 of you know, a, a new audience of people, to Agrippa, but also anybody else within earshot that might be able to hear this as well. And Festus here, it kind of now, he's going to say some things that are going to sound very flowery, but I do think it's pretty sincere. 
the way he kind of just defers to Agrippa. Uh, so, for example, verse 24, Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he has done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decide to go ahead and send him, but I have, excuse me, but I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. And so I'll just say again, I think even just the way that Festus lays, you know, kind of the whole situation out before Agrippa and the rest of this gathering, it's it's pretty genuine, surprisingly candid, nothing about that that really seems embellished in any way. And it is interesting to note that twice here in uh, in, in his verbiage here, uh, Festus refers to the emperor literally as Augustus. Um, your translation may say emperor, but if you're reading from like a New King James or a King James, actually just Augustus, which is a Latin word that means reverend or august. And here, of course, it specifically means the emperor Nero. And Festus is making it very clear that this is not a trial. All this simply is. It's just kind of a rehearing. We're just going to examine uh, and, and hear the whole thing out for my convenience to help me in what's kind of a predicament for me so that I'll be able to know what to write to Caesar when I send Paul's case up to him. Again, an actual retrial here would have been a violation of Paul's appeal to Caesar. And so all of that then brings us to the doorstep of chapter 26 where Paul, it's just kind of another one of these kind of cliffhanger ending chapters, where Paul is going to come before Agrippa and he's going to speak and he's going to give his he's going to give his defense and he's going to lay out the gospel. And chapter 26 is going to be the the third time that we're going to hear Paul's conversion story. We heard it in chapter 9, we heard it in chapter 22, and we're going to hear it again in chapter 26, some different details, some additional things that are going to be said. Maybe one little thing to think about, just a little note, is that right here what we have, Paul, an apostle, being brought face to face with Agrippa, a member of the Herod family. This is possibly for the first time, maybe even the last time, that apostle, an apostle of the Lord, comes and stands face to face with a Herod. That is unless James actually got to have the privilege of standing before Herod before Herod had him beheaded back in Acts chapter 12. But uh, here's kind of a, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a culminating moment here as Paul, a representative of Jesus, he's now going to come face to face with a Herod. And this is, as I think about, you know, why, oh, why do we keep getting the record of all of these defenses, you know, of Paul? Why does Luke choose to keep recording all of these for us? He could have just kind of, you know, summarized it pretty shortly and just kind of moved on. Uh, I think one of the reasons is, is to once again cast Paul in the shadow of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was arrested, and was then taken through these trials with the Jews, and then these various trials before the Romans, it is interesting that Jesus, he ends up giving a defense, first of all, to Pilate, 
a Roman uh, governor. And then he's brought before a Herod who, much like this Herod, was really interested in getting the opportunity to see him. Oh, yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear that guy. I've been, I've been looking forward to the opportunity. Yeah, bring him over here to me. Let me scout him out. And Paul's doing that very same thing here. Paul is standing where Jesus stood, brought before a governor, gave a defense to him, and now here's an interested Herod who wants to, yeah, let me hear him out. I've, I've heard about this guy. I know some things about why he's up here. Let me have a crack at him. I'd love to hear what he has to say. And that is what chapter 26 is going to be all about. It's about Paul, what he has to say to Agrippa. And when that time comes, me and Jason will probably have lots to say about that and look forward to having him back with me. Uh, this was a lot of talking for you to listen to, to one guy. It's nice to, to have conversation uh, going back and forth, but uh, I wanted to keep the consistency of our, our weekly uh, you know, chapter um, summaries uh, available online. And so uh, thank you for taking the time to listen. And uh, as Jason always concludes with, Let's just keep studying our Bibles, and I look forward to studying the Bible with you next week in Acts 26.